Good morning. Welcome into In Focus on News Radio KMAN. It is the first Thursday of the month, which means it's our opportunity to get an update from NBAF, the National Bio and Agri-Defense Facility. We'll also hear from uh, General Perry Wiggins from the Governor's Military Council a little bit later on. Let's go ahead and introduce our guests here today on uh, the NBAF side of things. Dr. Ken Burton, NBAF Deputy Director, joins us. Good morning, sir. Good morning, Brandon. Thanks, as always, for having us on the program. You bet. Good to talk to you once again. Katie Pulaski, NBAF Communications Director, also joins us. Good morning. Good morning, Brandon. It's nice to be here. Thank you. And uh, our special guest today is uh, the Associate Director of the Foreign Animal Disease Diagnostic Laboratory, which we're going to learn a little bit more about. And his name, Dr. Muzaffer Makdumi. Good morning. Good morning, Brandon, and good morning all. Well, thanks for having me on today. And where do we have the pleasure of uh, hearing you from, Dr. Makdumi? Where, where are you calling from today? I'm calling from Texas, Edinburgh, Texas. Okay. Well, welcome on the program. Is it a little sunnier there today? It's, it's rainy and dreary today here in Kansas. Yeah, it's pretty sunny here, so no thanks. Well, good deal. Well, at least someone's got some nice weather here today. Well, although we do need the rain, so I won't complain too much. So uh, good to talk to you here. We're going to learn a little bit more about uh, the Foreign Animal Disease Diagnostic Laboratory. I love the abbreviation here because it's FADL, which is uh, a lot easier to remember that one. But uh, I w- wanted to know, Dr. McDumey, first of all, what can you explain about the Foreign Animal Disease uh, Diagnostic Laboratory and what it does? Well, thanks, Brandon, for a great question. So, FADL, as we shorten it, uh, is part of the National Veterinary Services Laboratories, NBSL, located at the Plum Island Animal Disease Center in New York, but the lab will eventually move to NBAF. So, it's a diagnostic laboratory at its core, but it also has regulatory missions that's focused on prevention, surveillance, diagnosis, and response to high-consequence foreign animal diseases. Uh, additionally, uh, we host a training for federal and state veterinarians so they can re- recognize the clinical signs of these diseases in the field. Um, battle falls under USDA's Animal and Plant Health Inspection Service, and it's a perfect complement to the research side of NBAP. All right, so uh, explain kind of your background and uh, what you do there in your current position. So my background, um, I'm a veterinarian by training and have a master's degree in veterinary microbiology and immunology and a doctoral degree in biological sciences from UK. Uh, so it was during my master's degree that I developed a vaccine for foot rod and sheep, and then I went on to investigate the molecular epidemiology of uh, foot rod. Um, and as part of that, uh, you know, uh, the doctoral program, I uh, investigated some genome sequencing as, uh, at, at University of Monash in Australia, and uh, that was part of the doctoral dissertation. And uh, so after that, I went on to do a clinical residency, uh, which is a, essentially a specialty training uh, for, for veterinarians in livestock herd health at the University of California, Davis. And as part of the residency program, um, I pursued additional master's degree in veterinary preventive medicine. So in 2019, I became certified as diplomate of the American College of Veterinary Preventive Medicine. That actually took me to my previous position as regional director for Texas Animal Health Commission, uh, which is a regulatory agency for the state of Texas. 
And in that role, I let the disease programs, uh, especially the cattle fever tick eradication programs, as most of you might have already heard of, and um, along the Texas-Mexico border. So I was, you know, managing essentially leading uh, the cattle fever tick eradication program, 11 counties along the, along the border. Um, and collaborated with the USDA, the Department of Interior, to monitor and control re-incursions uh, re- of ticks from Mexico due to wildlife and stray animals. So in my current role, you know, um, I'm, I'm, as you mentioned, you know, as an associate director, I'll be uh, leading the laboratory, uh, the Foreign Animal Disease Laboratory, collaborating with, with our, uh, the state and federal partners uh, to ensure that the country is protected from, uh, you know, incursion of any foreign animal diseases and provide, uh, you know, diagnostic support uh, nationally and internationally as needed. All right. Uh, why did you choose to go into this sector of veterinary medicine? Great question. So I'm really passionate about diagnostic medicine because I believe it's the first step in the response to the disease outbreak. Uh, so after my you know, vet school, there was an outbreak of foot rot in sheep in Kashmir. And I could see firsthand the animals that are suffering because there was no cure. There was no vaccine for the disease. And without a vaccine, there's essentially no treatment and no cure. So some veterinarians could prescribe an antibiotic, but the disease would reoccur in about two weeks. So these poor farmers would actually spend a lot of money to treat the disease, but, you know, it would, it would reoccur. So after seeing that, I asked myself, what am I doing for the community? And that's actually what was a driving force for me to pursue my master's project and develop the vaccine for, for foot rot. And the people who actually used the vaccine were, were really excited and happy because now there was something that, that provided a cure. And whatever I have done since then has literally stemmed actually from, from that particular, you know, experience. There was an outbreak. I was able to address it and do something for the community. And that's actually what's the, what, you know, what's the driving force for me uh, to move forward in, in diagnostic medicine. All right. I'll back up just a minute here. You, you mentioned foot rot and uh, disease in sheep. I, I don't claim to be an expert on this. Can you explain a little bit what uh, causes foot rot and, and how it can um, hurt sheep herds? Yeah, excellent question. So foot rot is a, it's a, caused by an anaerobic bacterium, Dicylobacter nodosus. And uh, so the disease from a, you know, from a farm perspective, it causes lameness in sheep. It's a major animal welfare issue, um, you know, pretty much around the world, in, in Australia, in England, in Europe, in, in, in some of the Asian countries. And, uh, you know, uh, major animal welfare issue, uh, economically important, leading to 84 million pound loss to UK per year. And so, so what it essentially, you know, because of the inability for the, for the cure, essentially, without a vaccine, uh, so farmers were really compromised because uh, there, was, there was essentially no cure and, and there, was, there was really need for, for an effective cure, which actually came from a vaccine. And the, and the good thing about this vaccine is it has both therapeutic and prophylactic effects. So it would treat the symptoms and it would actually, uh, you know, give protection uh, for, for, for the bacterium to actually, you know, cause the disease. Uh, in the future, so that almost and so vaccinations twice a year would protect sheep from actually getting the disease. Now, if you talk about what it presents like, uh, it it's 
essentially it starts as an introducial dermatitis. So within the in, in between the hoof, there's inflammation, and then that progresses to virulent foot rot, where we essentially see there's necro- necrosis, there's gangrene, and ultimately it leads to sloughing off the epithelium, the hoof, separation of the hoof from the underlying soft tissue. It's a really, really painful, you know, um, event and painful disease. So, so I'm, I'm really, you know, truly, uh, you know, honored to be part of this project and happy that, you know, we were able to, to address this, uh, this issue uh, with, with the vaccine. All right. Well, wonderful. Well, how, how long, uh, or excuse me, uh, how will moving faddle to NBAF uh, help fight foreign animal disease, in your opinion? So our, our goal is to protect the country. When FADL was first established, it was good to have it on an island, but now we have, you know, NBAP with the highest level of biocontainment, a BSO-4 uh, laboratory. With technology advances and, you know, refined procedures, we don't have to depend on the island as the extra safety precaution. At Plum Island, we don't have the capability to handle BSO-4 pathogens right now, but that will be part of the FADL's mission going forward at NBAP. There are quite a few, you know, animal diseases that can impact human health, that zoonotic aspect, but these cannot be dealt with a BSL-3 setting. So NBAF being a $1.25 billion state-of-art facility, you know, that asset combined with the expertise that we have at FADL, and, of course, in collaboration with others at NBAF, will be key to fighting these four animal diseases. My goal is to first determine that the disease is not here, have the capability to actually diagnose it if it shows up, and protect our herds and our people from it. So we may not have these, you know, uh, diseases here right now, but we, we can't just sit back and, you know, not do anything. So some go, same goes to the BSL-4 pathogens. Uh, we may not have those in the country right now, but because of the foreign trade, there's a lot of, you know, international travelers coming in, products are getting shipped from across the world into the U.S., and there's always a threat that diseases can happen and occur that we don't have in the U.S. currently. So we have to be ready, and we have to have our infrastructure ready to prepare for those processes. Have you had a chance to visit the facility yet here in Manhattan? Well, that's a fantastic question. Not yet. So, uh, so I will be actually relocating to the attic, to the Plum Island Animal Disease Center, end of this month. And once I've started there, I will uh, then uh, move to, to uh, you know, NBAF. So the plan would be to visit NBAF either end of, uh, you know, most likely the middle of next month. All right. Very good. Well, I think you'll enjoy it here. It's, uh, I mean, the facility is pretty much uh, up now. I mean, it, it's been uh, going on for many years, and it uh, certainly is uh, neat, neat to see all the progress that's been going on there for the last several years. So we'll, we'll have to come say hi to you when, you when you come into town. Absolutely. I look forward to it, and I've been part of the discussions with NBAF remotely, but certainly look forward to meeting everybody. Thanks. All right. Well, we'll take a break and uh, come back. We'll uh, talk with Dr. Burton and uh, Katie Pulaski here in a moment as our NBAF discussion continues here on K-Man. We're back here on In Focus News Radio KMAN, talking with our guests from the National Bio and Agri-Defense Facility. And we're going to switch gears just a little bit and talk a little bit about uh, 
some recent development here in the Manhattan area and um, bring Dr. Burton back on the program. Uh, Dr. Burton, it appears private bioscience companies are starting to look at this region as an opportunity to grow their business, which we saw uh, here recently. Uh, what impact do you think this economic growth will have as the area seeks to become more heavily tied to vaccine development, research, and things that have been promised for years with NBAF coming into existence? Yeah, well, thanks for that question, Brandon. And, you know, not only being associated with NBAF, but all of us are also, you know, members of the Manhattan community and the Flint Hills area. And, and so anytime we see growth in this area that's in a positive uh, nature, we're really excited about it. So uh, anytime that, that we see these types of opportunities come up, it, it's going to be a, a plus, I think, for the area. Um, you know, one of the reasons Manhattan was selected is the site for NBAF uh, in the final selection process was the fact that it was close to the highest concentration of animal health companies basically in the world uh, called the Animal Health Corridor. And this is kind of an imaginary corridor that reaches from Columbia, Missouri at the east uh, up north to St. Joe, Missouri, and then Manhattan's the western border of it. But uh, w within that footprint, over 55% of, of all of the animal health companies in the world have some type of a footprint there. So, you know, that's a positive. This just continues to grow that footprint. Um, this area is, is close to several, not just Kansas State, but several other agricultural and land-grant universities in uh, surrounding states and across the nation, as well as veterinary schools like the one at K-State. Um, collaboration is, is key to NBAF's unique mission and and, uh, you know, you can hear the, the uh, dedication and the passion uh, Dr. Makdumi brings to NBAF. And so bringing the scientists uh, like Musafer to uh, Manhattan, uh, associated with the university, associated with uh, private industry, uh, and then also with NBAF, you know, it just makes for a great uh, brain trust, if you will, uh, here in this area to allow us to be kind of on the cutting edge of uh, capabilities. So our, our scientists are already participating in collaborative research and development, and, and we look forward to exploring additional opportunities with industry and, and other academic institutions or other government agencies that have similar interests in fighting animal diseases. So uh, we also even collaborate with uh, international partners already as part of a, a united global effort to fight animal diseases. So it's, it is pretty exciting, and it'll be interesting to see how it grows from there. Yeah, certainly. I think it's fascinating to see the, the growth already happening uh, with that recent announcement from Scorpion. Um, you know, as NBAF becomes more active, have people been able to reestablish connections? Yeah, uh, reestablish and establish. Uh, we've hired about 250 operational employees, you know, here at MBAF in Manhattan. And of those, it's probably different now, but I think the last number I heard was about 200 uh, were hired during the maximum telework period. So uh, a lot of the people that, uh, as we phase them into the facility, we started the 1st of March and, and we'll have everybody in uh, that we need operationally by uh, the end of May. But, uh, you know, it's a combination of getting to see people again uh, over the last two years and then also getting to meet new people. And uh, it, it's it's really interesting to hear some of the comments because uh, some people say, oh, I didn't realize that so-and-so was as tall as he is. 
and uh, some of those types of things when you only see them from the waist up on Zoom. So uh, it, it's been a, a real great morale booster, I think, for all of us at InBath. Yeah, that is fascinating then. Yeah, we kind of lose some of those uh, connections over, over time here with all the telework going on. Um, is there is there new construction going on in the entryway? Uh, what's going on over there? Yeah, there there is. You know, um, at MBAF, we're always looking to do continuous improvement of our, our processes and, and the facility uh, to ensure the safety and security of NBAF. And uh, so that's what's going on right now at the West Entranceway. It's part of our uh, efforts. You know, this continuous improvement is, is part of our culture and goal for becoming a high-reliability organization. So um, that construction on the entryway on the west side, what it does is it'll strengthen our facilities' vehicle security measures uh, as they uh, pass through that first initial checkpoint coming off of Denison. Um, this is totally separate from the final touches in the facility's construction, so this is still on track to be completed later on this spring and early summer. So you'll, you'll see small projects uh, crop up here and there uh, as we identify things that need to be uh, strengthened or need to be modified to fit our needs. All right. We'll bring on Katie Pulaski here. Katie, since construction is nearly done, will there be an opportunity for tours of the facility at some point? Sure. Great question, Brandon. So even though construction is going to be complete soon, we do still have to complete the commissioning process. So that's the testing of all of MBAP's critical systems. So everything that really makes sure the facility runs as needed and is as, as safe and secure as needed. Um, and that is expected to be complete this summer. So during this time, there are parts of the facility that have to remain basically uninterrupted during that time to complete those tests. Um, in addition, scientists from the Plum Island Animal Disease Center, including our battle team, are starting to come visit their lab spaces so they can plan for moving in. So we're trying to make sure they have access uh, when they need to, to be able to come and do that. So really, all of this creates a tight schedule. So tours will be difficult to schedule and really have to be prioritized based on contribution to the mission at MBAF for now. So even though the campus is closed, though, we, we certainly still want to continue to be open with our communications and, and really strive to do that in a lot of ways. Um, as an example, our, several of our MBAF employees have recently participated in outreach across the region, the country, and even the world. So when we are able to present in person, we can share some photos of the working parts of the facility and more thoroughly explain the safety and security protocols. So we really enjoy being able to share that information with folks. Um, we've also had the opportunity to present. So we've, we've talked to various groups in the region this past month who are either visiting the area. Um, so great when we have the opportunity when folks are coming to the area to be able to share about impact with them. And we've even been hosted by local groups such as the Omigo Chamber of Commerce, who were just excited to hear an update on the facility. Um, another one, just this week, Dr. Burt and I are participating in the second biosecurity hybrid symposium, which is hosted by ABSA, the Association for Biosafety and Biosecurity. So we've been really busy, but, you know, we certainly want to encourage folks that are interested in, uh, you know, learning more about the facility, maybe seeing some of those photos to reach out to us um, at our in-bath um, nbaf at usda.gov email address and we will certainly do our best to try to come to you um, and we certainly still do uh, virtual presentations as well. All right. 
and you mentioned uh, some some things there about uh, n- not being able to have tours. I imagine will there be a point uh, at, at some point where there will be a ribbon cutting at, for NBAF? Maybe not right away, but soon. You think? We are uh, starting to work on looking at dates and things like that for a ribbon cutting. Yeah. All right. So, so that's in the plan. So stay tuned for that. Uh, we heard that NBAF scientists were at the uh, Kansas Science Fest this past weekend in downtown Manhattan. How did that go? Yeah, that was a really fun event, and we were pleased to be asked to participate in that opportunity uh, and to teach kids about what our scientists do. So our foreign arthropod born Animal Disease Research Unit, or FABADRU, um, that's the group that the unit we talked about with Dr. Chadmir last month. Uh, so our Fabadru scientists immediately expressed interest in participating as soon as they heard about the opportunity and really did all the legwork to get there. So they, um, at the fair, they or at the festival, they showed off insects and taught kids about mosquitoes and how they carry diseases um, at one of the tables in the library. And then the other table that they had at the end of point uh, got a little bit windblown. It was a windy day. But um, they helped their um, kids to see how germs collect on your hands and the type of personal protective equipment, or PPE, that some scientists will wear in containment laboratories. Uh, So special thanks to the K-State Insect Zoo for contributing some of the insect specimens for for our use at the festival. Um, But we're really sure that our entomologists really helped spark an interest in a few young people. Uh, because of their passion for the sciences. So we're really thrilled to have been able to participate in that. That's neat. All right. Well, good stuff. And look forward to uh, learning more as uh, the months go on here in 2022. Katie and uh, Dr. Burton, appreciate the time. And uh, thanks also to our special guest, uh, Dr. McDoomey. Thanks, Thank Dolly. Right. Thank you, Brandon. Appreciate it. And uh, that's going to wrap up our NBAF segment. We'll uh, hear from General Wiggins coming up in a moment here on News Radio KMAN. We're back on In Focus News Radio KMAN. Second half of our program starts now as we welcome on the show Executive Director of the Governor's Military Council, uh, Lieutenant General Retired Perry Wiggins. Good morning, sir. Morning, Brendan. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. It's good to talk to you again. I uh, missed you last month, but uh, I know sometimes things come up, so uh, we always appreciate getting a chance to uh, hear from you. No, it's always a pleasure. You know, it was a busy uh, month last month. As you know, we were I was knee deep in legislation here in the state, and so had to do a lot of testifying and and go to uh, attend a number of hearings. So I apologize, but uh, glad to be here this uh, this month. Yeah, May is such an exciting month because it's uh, you know, a lot of folks are looking forward to the summer. At least that's how I, I view it. I say this is my favorite time of year, May and June, uh, because the weather's getting warmer and nicer. But May is full of recognition months here. I've talked about a lot of them here on K-Man the last several days uh, because everybody, everybody comes in and says, and we've got Mental Health Awareness Month, we've got all these other things. It's also Military Appreciation Month. That's correct. Yeah, this is the month uh, that's been designated, although I think, you know, every month ought to be Military Appreciation Month. I'm a little parochial in that, so you just have to bear with me. But this is the month uh, that our nation has set aside, uh, you know, where our citizens ought to go and reach out to our veterans and those that wear the cloth of the nation and and just say uh, thank you for their service. Uh, and, and now, in the current environment, I think it highlights uh, more than ever how important those that are standing on point for this nation are in protecting our freedoms and our liberties. Uh, there's still some bad actors out there, 
And unfortunately, I think uh, there will always be bad actors. And so there's always a requirement for those uh, service members and their families that really sacrifice a lot uh, for our freedoms. So thanks for bringing that up. Military Appreciation Month is uh, is significant. And so for all of your listeners out there, I hope they'll take time to, to say thank you for those veterans and service members that uh, have wore a cloth to the nation. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, of course, uh, there'll be some opportunities. I know this month uh, out at Fort Riley, here in the Manhattan area, there's uh, obviously Memorial Day coming up and all kinds of opportunities to uh, to do that here this month. Yeah, Memorial Day, you know, a lot of people, uh, you know, and, and rightfully so. I think, you know, a lot of people that I've talked to over time have had questions. Well, Memorial Day ought to be a day where, you know, we just, you know, we're solemn. We do. I think celebrating Memorial Day is okay. I mean, that's why I wore the cloth and nation. So people didn't have to worry about uh, celebrating with family and friends and those sort of things. So, um, but we ought to take a special time. Uh, and normally it's the last Monday of the month is, is uh, Memorial Day is where we celebrate it. Um, we ought to take time to recognize and respect uh, those that paid the ultimate sacrifice and service to this nation so we can go enjoy family and friends. Uh, so taking a little bit of time out and doing that, I think, is honoring those families uh, that paid uh, the ultimate sacrifice and the loss of a loved one. And it pays uh, respect to those who uh, gave the ultimate sacrifice in America's wars. You know, on the topic of Memorial Days and memorials, there's actually a special event happening today, I believe, in Topeka. They're going to unveil that Veterans Memorial. Isn't that right? I think so. I think so. And, and you know, throughout Kansas, uh, there are communities that have special events to recognize uh, and honor uh those those that gave their lives in service to this nation. Uh, I know Manhattan has special events as well in Junction City. Uh, so it is a time and there'll be events. So you can just take a little bit of your time and, and attend those as well. Um, but we have some great uh, veteran service organizations that, uh, that put on events to highlight uh, Memorial Day and the significance of Memorial Day to our nation. All right. Certainly. Uh Lots, lots to do here this month, and uh, we encourage people to, yeah, again, thank a military member, uh, and and that really, I mean, you can just say thanks. A lot of folks, uh, you know, we, we hear that a lot, but you never get sick of it as a military, fo- um, uh, as a veteran yourself, correct? Well, no, I mean, you know, I will tell you, it's truly humbling uh, because we are the greatest uh, military force on this planet because we serve the most, I think, and the greatest military. Uh, uh, you know, uh, country on this planet as well. Uh, so for me, um, I, when they say thank you, I take it and I, uh, and I say thank you back. And I also take it because uh, really they're not just thanking me. They're thanking all those that wore the cloth. And, and, and so for me, it is a, a sense of pride. Um, so I, I do appreciate those that do. And uh, I never shy away from shaking their hand or, or receiving a hug. We're doing those sort of things. Although I would tell those that do it, don't be surprised if there's some that are that are, you know, uh, they're humble and they and they are awkward in that process. That doesn't mean that service members are not thankful uh, for your appreciation. And so, 
uh, like I said, reach out, say thank you, and uh, it's greatly appreciated. Well, uh, since we uh, didn't have you on uh, uh, any, any time uh, as recent here, since we last spoke, there's been some major developments here in the Manhattan area, of course, with the announcement of the uh, uh, Scorpion Biological Services planning a facility here in Manhattan. And uh, one of the reasons for them locating here was NBAF, obviously, but also the proximity to Fort Riley and the opportunity that, uh, you know, presents itself there. We've talked about, you know, the, the need for more opportunities for transitioning soldiers. This seems like a, a certain plus here for our uh, economy, wouldn't you say? Oh, absolutely. You know, the, the nation is suffering not from jobs availability, but for a lack of workforce. Uh, Fort Riley is absolutely an area where the focus is put on by the employer's uh, in businesses that want to come to the state of Kansas and to our region, uh, because you have a a group of individuals that are separating or retiring annually out of the gates of Fort Riley that bring a skill set and values that I think are critical to businesses if they want to be successful. Um, and so I, I look forward to seeing how this is going to impact us as a region. Uh, and I think that the soldiers uh, out there on Fort Riley are going to play a critical role uh, in the economic prosperity of our region, uh, specifically with organizations like Scorpion. So this is great news. I think it's just the tip of the iceberg, and uh, and I look forward to that exponential growth. Yeah, yeah, I've heard a lot of that. Yeah, tip of the iceberg is a good way to put it because, you know, this is probably the first of uh, several that will be coming, maybe not to, specifically to Manhattan, but the region overall. You know, what what an opportunity this really presents for the the growth here. No, absolutely. And, and I think, you know, we have been laser focused on the separating and retiring servicemen, trying to uh, educate and inform employers about the benefits of hiring somebody who is disciplined, uh, somebody that has skill sets that may not necessarily be in the lane that you're looking for, but are trainable. And they have the intellectual acumen to learn that particular skill set and be a very, very productive uh employee for their organization. Now, I know not everybody's going to choose to stay in Manhattan after they get out of the military. They may want to go back to their, their homes. But as a selling point here for this area, what, what, do, you, what do you use as leverage or, or what do others use as leverage here to try to sway them to stay here in Manhattan or, or Kansas overall? Well, I, I'm a perfect example of somebody who chose Kansas. Um, and, and I chose Kansas because of the people. I chose Kansas because Kansas values are Army values. And so for me uh, and for many that separate and decide to call Kansas home, it really is because there's a genuine embracing of service members here uh, in in this state and in this region uh, that you can't and it'd be hard to replicate. Um, And so I think raising a family in Kansas is is an incredible uh, place to do that. And so I always tell people that I run into, you know, welcome to Kansas. Uh, that is really America's values. And, and it's really a great place to call home. And so I think that's what I tell soldiers. I don't, I don't try to say that, you know, we have big skyscrapers and we, and, you know, we have, uh, hundreds and hundreds of restaurants and incredible place, but we have a great place to reconnect with your family and really, uh, to me, I think, and this is my personal belly button, uh, is I, 
I get a genuine uh, appreciation and, and my reward is meeting people that are unique and people who uh, you build deep friendships with. And that's what you can do here in Kansas. And so that's how I sell Kansas. Um, and you can't put a price tag on that, Brandon. It's, uh, it's hard to explain. It's hard to really put your arms around it. But once you've experienced it, it's an easy sell. Yeah. I, I always say, you know, and I love this region of the state, especially the Flint Hills. It's so beautiful. Uh, but I, I feel like overall as a state, we don't, we don't market that well enough here as well as other states, uh, you know, market their beauty. Like I've lived in Idaho. They market that like crazy because, you know, it's a beautiful state, but Kansas has very beautiful, you know, countryside prairie and on all that. And I just feel like you know, the perception from the national perspective is that Kansas is flat and boring, you know? Well, you know, and I, 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 no offense to Wamigo. I love Wamigo. My wife and I go there to eat tacos and enjoy ourselves. It's a beautiful city. But the movie, uh, The Wizard of Oz, really put a paradigm in people's heads that's not true. Um, you know, it, it, it's, it's not flying monkeys and tornadoes. Kansas is really, like you said, a beautiful state uh, with hardworking people that enjoy family, enjoy getting out. Um, and to me, that's special. Uh, to me, that's the America I grew up in. And it's one that Annette and I decided to, uh, that's why we decided to come back here to Kansas and, and make it our home. All right. General Wigan is stating it as it is. Uh, the facts here on K-Man this morning. We're going to take a break and uh, come back more here on In Focus News Radio KMAN. Segment number two of In Focus comes your way, or I should say, segment number two with Perry Wiggins here on News Radio KMAN. Uh, we continue on talking about uh, different things, uh, including, well, uh, we mentioned May being Military Appreciation Month. It's also Mental Health Awareness Month, and uh, it's so important here, especially uh, for soldiers, and uh, to know that they're not alone, that um, you know, mental health is is uh, it's had a stigma as has a lot of things, and uh, there's help out there for folks who need it. Yeah, there sure is, Brandon. You know, the bottom line is we still suffer. Uh, you know, one suicide in our military is too many, uh, but we suffer about 22 suicides per month among our military family, and uh, and that's significant. And and the good news, uh, I, if there can be any good news associates, is the Army's tried to stamp down the stigma associated with suicide and establish programs uh, to help our service members that are experiencing depression and post-traumatic stress syndrome. And, and that, that, to me, is key. I think breaking that paradigm is going to make a huge difference in the lives of our service members who are struggling uh, with this particular uh, issue. And so I, I'm excited to know uh, and see uh, veterans crisis lines being established uh, that are 24-7 that people can call in to get the help uh, and talk to somebody. And then, you know, it, it, is, uh, it is critical, and it's so critical that our Department of Defense has established a Defense Suicide uh, Prevention Office which is new and it's something that I think is sorely needed. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. And um, I think one thing that's great here is I think it's this summer, the uh, new suicide prevention line goes into 
effect, the 888 number. Have you heard about that? I, I have heard about it. Yes, I have. I know that the pre-existing one was like 8255. Um, but, you know, a, a new fact that I didn't know, Brandon, that kind of you know, I need to do re- nor, new, uh, more research on is, you know, the majority of those suicides, those 22 I talk about monthly, um, the average age of the majority is between 50 and 59 years of age. Um, to me, that was uh, a shocking uh, statistic when you think about it, um, because these are folks that are up there in age. And I, I, I tended to generally focus on uh, the young service member that are having problems adjusting uh, to the new service life, uh, maybe many miles away from home. Uh, but 50 to 59 years old to me was shocking. Yeah, and just a reminder, there there is help out there and uh, a lot of avenues that didn't exist, you know, a, a generation ago. Yeah, I, I think there's been a lot more attention to that these several past several years. I think so. And I think that the most important thing out there is, you know, and I tell friends of mine all the time that, you know, our service extends beyond the uniform. Um, we as former service members need to make sure we're reaching out to those those battle buddies that we had and making a phone call and checking in on them. Uh, it, it takes very little of your time and effort, but the reward and, and is a thousand fold. And so we need to continue to check on our buddies. Nobody can relate to them like those that served with them. And that's critical. Uh, talking about some other opportunities here this month. Uh, we were talking before the program uh, off-air about a change of command ceremony that will be taking place this month at Fort Riley. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah, you know, the, a lot of people know the divisions uh, deployed over into Europe and are training with our allies uh, and doing some some critical training uh, with our NATO allies and specifically the, the Polish uh, military. But uh, on uh, May 11th, the division will have a change of command, which uh, – you know, happens. Uh, unfortunately, we lose uh, great Americans like D.A. Sims, and and uh, he goes on and is going to go on and do bigger and better things. He and Fayer going to Washington D.C. and he's going to be the uh, J. Three on the Joint Staff, which is uh, for him going to be a very busy job. But uh, I'm glad to see somebody with his intellectual acumen taking that position. He'll do uh, our nation well. And then uh, we're we're going to get a new officer in uh, John V. Meyer who's going to uh, take over on May 11th, and he's coming out of Europe. Uh, he's the deputy chief of staff, the, the G3 or the operations officer for uh, United States Army, European, uh, and Africa Command. So uh, that's, that's, uh, that's a critical thing, and it's a big thing. And then we've got a new uh, assistant division commander that's going to be arriving, if she hasn't already, and that's Brigadier General Nell. So there's going to be a lot of different faces out there at Fort Riley. Uh, the song is true. The Army just keeps rolling along. But uh, it's a great opportunity for us to say farewell to folks who have served honorably here at Fort Riley and to welcome uh, a new command team. I'm, I'm curious, just not, having not been involved in the military in my, my family's life, uh, the, the role of the commanding general – is it, is it a relatively short stint? Is it two years or, or can it vary? Tradi- yeah, traditionally in a division is two years. Um, and it's the best job 
uh, an officer can have in the army. I, I truly believe that. Um, you know, a lot of people have differing opinions, but it, it hurts when you change command. I mean, DA Sims will be standing out there. He has a vehicle with his name stenciled on it. And I remember, uh, when I changed out, they rip your name off the vehicle. Um, they, and they change your name at the tank at the front gate to the new guy. And, uh, and, and, you know, you're, you're happy. Uh, and you know that that's a part in the course of being wearing a uniform, but it still stings a little bit if you're honest. Uh, but yeah, every two years, normally in division command, uh, the command team changes out. Yeah. I imagine that, you know, just ripping it off. That kind of, kind of tugs at the heart a little bit, I would imagine. Well, yeah. When you see your driver basically doing about face and drive off with the new guy. Yeah. You, you know, it's, uh, it's difficult, but, uh, you know, I laugh at that. It's it's sort of tongue in cheek, but uh, anybody that's honest will tell you that it's uh, it's the bittersweet moment. And uh, it, it for Da and Faye, you know, they're moving on uh, and going to do great things for our Army, and that's a great thing for us here at Fort Riley. Absolutely. Well, just a couple minutes left here with uh, General Wiggins on in focus. Uh, you know, Mother's Day is this weekend. I I can't not uh, end this interview without talking about our, our mothers and especially our military mothers out there and, and, and the, the role they play here for so many soldiers. Oh, it's huge. I mean, I, I can tell you that, uh, you know, when I first joined the military and I raised my right hand, you know, I, I went into the family business per se. My dad was a professional uh, air force um, member and senior non-commissioned officer. And, you know, and, and he kind of just, you know, didn't about face sort of thing after I raised my right hand and did my deal. But my mom, you know, it, it's hard on mothers. And and so for military members, those of us that are sometimes deployed thousands of miles away, uh, you know, we think about our moms and we think about, you know, all they've done for us in our lives. And, and so this is going to be a tough time for soldiers uh, that are standing on point and sometimes thousands of miles away from home. And uh, it, but it's a special day. And so for all those mothers out there, I just say thanks. And and I appreciate the military families in general and their sacrifice and willingness to give the nation's really most precious resource, their sons and daughters, uh, to protect our freedoms. Absolutely. Well, uh, we say thank you to all the, the military moms and the Gold Star moms out there. Uh, we appreciate uh, all that their sons and daughters have done for our country. Uh, anything else here before we wrap things up? No, I just say thanks. And, and once again, I'd just like to remind people that, uh, you know, this is a month to go out there, but really every day to, to appreciate our military is a, a good thing. And you got to realize we have a military uh, because we, we have – to serve the nation's people. Uh, you know, they serve the constitution to support and defend, but more importantly, they serve the people of this great nation. So I just want to say thanks, Brandon, for an opportunity. And I, I apologize to the listeners out there for sounding like a Hallmark commercial when I was describing why I chose Kansas, but, uh, you know, Kansas is special and the people are special. And so this is a great place to serve, live. And, uh, and I appreciate the opportunity to, to reach out. Yep, absolutely. Well, we'll look forward to talking to you again here real soon, and uh, have a good weekend. Thanks, Brandon. You have a great weekend yourself. All right, that's going to wrap up In Focus here for this Thursday. Coming up tomorrow on the program, Gary Feich will join us from the 
Riley County K-State Extension Office. We'll also hear from a couple of guests with uh, the Walk Kansas 5K happening this weekend. And we'll spend a couple segments talking with Representative Mike Dodson. He's going to be joining us in studio tomorrow for an extended chat about the legislative session. We'll have that and uh, so much more coming up tomorrow morning. And as always, if you need to check out this episode or if you missed it. Thank you, sir. Or if you want to go back and recheck any of it, we'll have it up on our SoundCloud account. Also on Facebook, 1350 KMAN on Facebook. We don't have a game on our schedule today, but the game comes up at 4. Before that, we have the Dan Patrick Show, Dave Ramsey, Ken Coleman. Plays out the rest of our lineup. Thanks for listening. News Radio KMAN.